listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the book of Acts entitled, The Birth of the Church. Would you turn with me in your Bible to Acts chapter 3 as we read the second half of the chapter beginning in verse 11 where Peter delivers his second sermon to the church. Um, Acts chapter 3 verse 11. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this, these passages together? It begins saying, while the beggar, the man who had just been healed, held on to Peter and John, all the people were astonished and came running to them in the place called Solomon's Colonnade. And when Peter saw this, he said to them, men of Israel, why does this surprise you? Why do you stare at us as if by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers has glorified his servant Jesus. You handed him over to be killed, and you disowned him before Pilate, though he had decided to let him go. And you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be released to you, and you killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead, and we are witnesses of this. By faith in the name of Jesus, this man whom you see and know was made strong. It is Jesus' name and faith that comes through him that has given this complete healing to him, as you can all see. Now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders. But this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through the prophets, saying that his Christ would suffer. Repent, then, and turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out. The times of refreshing may come from the Lord." And that he may send the Christ who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. He must remain in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he has promised long ago through his holy prophets. For Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. And anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from among his people. Indeed, all the prophets from Samuel on, as many as have spoken, have foretold of these days. And you are heirs of the prophets and of the covenant of God made with your fathers. He said to Abraham, through your offspring, all peoples on earth will be blessed. And when God raised up his servant, he sent him first to you to bless you by turning each of you from your wicked ways. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we ask as we venture into this lengthy text that your Holy Spirit would be the one who not only gives us understanding, but gives us also application. I'm mindful of how in chapter 2, when they heard the word preached, it said it cut them to their hearts. And God, we don't want to be cut in the sense of a wound, but we do welcome that scalpular work of surgery that you do in our hearts to Remove things from our hearts and our minds that should not be there, that defile us and rob our joy and our peace, and that you would fill those places with the healing graces of your Holy Spirit. So use this time for your glory in our lives, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Often I have found that both cynics and sincere Christians ask the same question. Why doesn't the church see the same kind and number of miracles that we read about in the book of Acts? Usually there are various explanations, positively and negatively given. There is what we call the Reformed camp, who basically says all the miracles ceased after the death of the last apostle. We call them cessationists. So they say, that was then, this is now, so don't look for God to do now what he did back then. That period is over. And then on the other extreme, there is the charismatic camp, which says basically it doesn't happen because we don't have enough faith. If we acted like Peter and just went around commanding uh, the demons to be gone and healing to come, we could make it happen because the creative word of God is in our mouth and we just need to speak the word. So they say basically it's a lack of faith why there isn't more healings. And then we have the skeptics who simply say, well, 
They never happened in the first place. It's all a bunch of make-believe. It's mythology. It never happened. So the reason you don't see it is because it wasn't happening then. They just made those stories up to get you to believe. But I'd like to offer really a fourth uh, explanation. And I'd like to set it up this way, that although Luke's history records, as it says in chapter 2, that they did many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles... Luke actually records only 30 miracles in the entire 28 chapters of the, gospel, uh, of the book of Acts. In other words, 30 miracles recorded over a period of 30 years, that averages about one miracle per year. Undoubtedly, there were far more miraculous things that were done, just as I believe that today there are far more miraculous things are done than we recognize I can just say from my own experience, I've seen God do a lot of amazing things, miraculous healings. I've seen cancers disappear for reasons I cannot explain besides the fact that we've prayed for somebody. I even have people that I know who died and came back to life, interestingly, after actually seeing Jesus in heaven. But what we know then, as we know now, is that not everyone was always healed. We assume that was the case, but... There's nothing in the text that really tells us that. But there were those that happened were not nearly as dramatic as the one we talked about last week where a man who had never walked was suddenly fully capable to walk and to run and to leap. And even though Luke tells us that there were many, many other healings that took place, it's, it's clear that this healing was special and it was unique. And that's evidenced, first of all, by the response of the man, where it says he is running, he's leaping, he's praising God. But secondly, by the reaction of the crowd, which is said they were astonished, and they also came running to see what happened. In fact, Peter says, why are you marveling over what has taken place here? And the reason is kind of obvious, because they'd never seen anything like this happen before. He was one of those individuals that everybody had kind of written off. This is his fate, and this is the way he will be till the day he dies. Which, by the way, is a fault that we often commit when we think about people in our lives who don't really want Christ or are interested in the gospel, and we think they're so far gone they can never be saved. If there's anything that we can extrapolate out of this miracle is that nobody is beyond the reach of God as long as they're sucking air and pumping blood. But thirdly, we also find, we see it in the anger and the angry reaction of the authorities, where later on in chapter 4, after Peter and John are arrested for the crime of doing miracles without a license, it says they are greatly disturbed. They seized Peter and John and put them in jail, and later on they even threatened and beat them. But what is not emphasized nearly as much as the miracles in the book of Acts is the number of sermons that were preached. Now, if I were to take a a poll right now and ask you, would you rather hear a sermon or see a miracle? I know most of you would say, we'd rather hear a sermon. (laughs) And you probably lie about other things as well. But the point is, we often overlook them as being the less significant things, and therefore they tend to go unstudied. But we find that clearly in the 30 years recorded in the history of the book of Acts, the number of sermons must have easily been into the thousands, if not thousands of thousands. Because from the very first moments of the founding of the church, we're told in chapter 2, we're told again in chapter 5, that they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching, and that every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They literally were studying and hearing the word of God expounded on a daily basis, I don't know what time of day, but it's very likely at this very time of day when the evening sacrifice was to be offered that they would have gathered in Solomon's colonnade, that large extensive portico on the eastern side of the temple, and there they would have had church, thousands upon thousands listening to the apostles share and minister and expound on the word of God. But yet, just as every miracle was not reported, so too not every sermon is recorded. In fact, very few are actually written down or even noted. Altogether, there's only 20 sermons in the book of Acts that were actually mentioned, and most of them only in part were given little snippets. 
And it's interesting that six of them were given by Peter, one by the first martyr, Stephen, who was killed by the, uh, by, uh, the apostle Paul, one by Philip the evangelist, and the rest, the remaining 12, were given by the apostle Paul and are really amongst the shortest that are delivered in the book of Acts. But of those, only six can be classified as what we would call evangelistic sermons. In other words, most of them were sermons given to the church, and when we speak to the church, it's often or supposed to be somewhat different in context than when we're teaching to, speaking to non-believers. And it's interesting because two of those, or excuse me, three of those are actually given by Peter. And Peter's sermons tend to be the first delivered, the longest delivered, the most detailed, and in that sense, maybe the most important because they reveal to us what was the message that was being preached from the very beginning. And that's a critical point to note, I think, in our Christian lives. Because oftentimes what we do is we drift away from that which was in the beginning. Now, I've seen churches that boast that they're a New Testament church. And they make claims that we're just like the first century Christianity. But there's a lot of reasons, and I don't have time to go into them, why that's probably not true. It's their concept of what is a first century church. But all we really know about the first century church is what we read here in these opening chapters of the book of Acts. And when we look at that, we realize that the message that Peter preached is a lot different. And even the message that Paul preached to the Gentile Athenians is a great deal different than the way we approach gospel preaching today. You see, these evangelistic messages really consist of only three key points. And if you claim to be a Christian and yet you don't agree with these three points, you probably aren't. You're probably not saved, and you're probably not going to heaven, because these are the kernels of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Do I have your attention at this point? <laughs> it's a cheesy way to get you drawn in, but you know, <laughs> I'm a cheese ball, so what can I say? But let me begin by talking about something that many of you are familiar, some aren't, called the Four Spiritual Laws. In 1952, Dr. Bill Wright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, a wonderful ministry that is still doing great work all over the world, he introduced a simple evangelistic, a four-step plan called the Four Spiritual Laws as really kind of a guide to sharing your faith. And I've used it many times. It was very helpful. But as I really began to reflect on this passage today, it struck me that even though I agree with the four spiritual land laws and its plan for evangelism, I do have a problem with one point in the laws. And that's not so much the point itself, but the order in which it's introduced. You see, it begins with the first law by saying, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, conceptually, that's true. I, I completely agree with that. I, I believe that God loves me. I believe God has a wonderful plan for my life, and I like what he's done so far. And that's true of you and me and, and all people, that God has this plan he wants to implement. We find that Jesus and Paul both frequently spoke about the unconditional, dynamic, in-depth love that God has for all mankind, both the saved and the unsaved. I mean, this is John 3.16, the first Bible passage I ever learned. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God's love was the motive for Christ's death on the cross. Yet, it's interesting that God's love is never mentioned in any of the sermons in the book of Acts. In fact, even more surprising, the word love in any of its four cognate forms is never appears in the 25,000 words that make up the book of Acts. Not once. Not in a single sermon does Peter or Paul or Stephen or Philip say, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. They don't even mention it. Now, they may have lost their copy of the four spiritual laws. 
Now, yet today when we speak about evangelism, God's love for the individual is emphasized above and beyond anything else that we have to say. Even sometimes to the point of neglecting more central concepts that are found in all these sermons, beginning with repentance from sin and the consequential change that that repentance will produce in our lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that God doesn't love sinners. I have to keep on emphasizing it because I always find people take away from my messages some interesting conclusions. Clearly, God does. But let me tell you, I've never met anyone who came to Christ solely based upon the fact that God loves them. In fact, most people I talk to today tell me they don't worry about where they're going to heaven because God loves me just the way I am. Sinful lifestyles are explained away by simply saying, God made me this way. Now, God certainly loves you. He loves you even in your current state or condition. But he also loves you too much to leave you that way. I strongly suspect this primary emphasis upon God's love for sinners is really nothing more than an homage to a self-absorbed generation that was already deeply in love with themselves and were unwilling to hear that God was displeased with their lifestyle. The false theology was bolstered certainly by the pseudo-psychological prattlings of the Dalai Lama of all people, because as I was searching for a source to this statement, if you don't love yourself, you can't love others, I found over and over again being led back to the Dalai Lama. Now, that may sound like a good source for theological truth in your life. I choose not to. Because like most lies and exaggeration, this has been repeated so often, so loudly, so authoritatively, that it's considered heresy on the level of a hate crime to question the veracity of it. More importantly, that is not what the Bible says. The Bible does not say if you can't love yourself, you can't love other people. In fact, it says almost something to the complete opposite extreme. I mean, I agree, both the Old and the New Testament repeatedly say at least 10 separate times that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. but did you catch the different order of the words? It doesn't say love yourself so that you can love others, it says love others because you love yourself. Your love for yourself is the reference point for loving other people. I love myself a lot. When I woke up this morning and I looked in the mirror, I wasn't looking for your face. When I scrubbed and did all the stuff, sprayed on the foo-foo water so I wouldn't stink after sweating up here all day, and all the rest of the things I did, and I walk out and I say, do I look okay? Do I smell okay to my wife? Believe me, I wasn't really thinking about you. I wasn't thinking, is my breath offensive or does my body reek? No, what I was thinking of, I don't want you to dislike me if it does. You see, so we look at people who love themselves, we say they're narcissists, but on the other extreme of the psychological pole is the, the codependents who also love themselves and they do anything you want to keep you from not liking them. And the narcissist does everything because he can't imagine that you wouldn't. But the end of the day is it's all about self-love. I love me more than anyone else. I, I confess that. That is my sin. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. I often sit and say, God, I wish I wasn't this way. But I do really love myself. So much so that when I look for an example of how to love others, I just need to look at how obsessively I care for my own needs. In fact, that's the very thing that Paul said we should do because when he's writing to the Ephesian men, the husbands, about how they should treat their wives, listen to how he described or the, how he said the reference point for them should be. He said, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. After all, no one ever hated his own body, 
but he feeds it and he cares for it. <clears throat> Men often criticize women for always looking in the mirror. That's because they have, don't have as wide a peripheral vision and have to turn their heads to do it. We, men, let's admit it, we're kind of checking ourselves out all the time. One time I was, we were, my wife and I were in downtown Seattle and just having a fun time together and it started raining. <laughs> Strange that that would happen in Seattle. And we just got completely drenched, you know, and, and uh, as we were walking by this one store with these large windows, my wife looked in the mirror and said, oh, my hair looks terrible. And I said, yes, it does. We need to rush back to the hotel and get out of these wet clothes as quickly as we can. Um, but <laughs> you'll get it. You'll get it. <laughs> it's like one guy said, men's minds are, are really simple to understand. They're very simple. They're spelled S-E-X. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and I, I looked at, at myself in my reflection. And I thought to myself, <gasps> Still got it. <laughs> to which she said, you never had it. But I love you anyway. In fact, one morning I woke up and I looked in the mirror and I said, man, I feel like I'm getting so old and look at how floppy I'm getting. You know, I need to get fitted for a bro. And I just, you know, this is not a good point in my life. And she, as she turns and walks out of the bathroom, she says, I never married you for your looks. <gasps> <laughs> True story, honey. True story. I'm not making this up. <laughs> you see, but why would we care except we like ourselves so much? In fact, later when Paul is warning about the extremely difficult, painfully perilous, and terrible times in the end of human history, he writes, he said, for people will be lovers of themselves rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, especially the power to love unlovable people. You see, Jesus described selfless, sacrificial loving as being the consequence, not the cause, of being born again. When I am born again, something happens inside of me that I do begin to understand that I am so deeply loved that I no longer have to worry about taking care of myself. As someone once put it, I, I'm fully loved and I'm fully known. And that becomes the amazing thing because God who knows everything about me loves me anyway. And suddenly that yearning, that effort to get people to like, to love, to respect, to give me their admiration, attention, is bled out of my system and I can simply stop worrying about myself and focusing on other people and loving them as Christ loves them. But again, my role model is not myself and my own love for self. My role model is the love that he has for me. Jesus noted that this ability to love other people is so unhuman, so uniquely part of what it means to be born again and to be a Christian, that it would set us apart in the eyes of the world. He said, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This, in fact, our ability to love each other is so unique, so unusual, that even as we're looking at the book of Acts, the word of love never appears once, and yet we find the evidence that these people were deeply in love because they no longer looked upon their own needs, but they began to see the needs of others and were willing to make huge sacrifices in order to address those needs as they arose in other people's lives. That's what love looks like. You love somebody. How do, it's easy to say, I love you so much. But the reality is love is only known by the action that prompts. If I love you, it comes out in how I view you and how I treat you and how I minister to and care for you. In Galatians 5, Paul said that loving people was the fruit of the Spirit, not the root or the basis of our salvation. But people today do not need to be told to love themselves. They already do instinctively, intuitively, intensely. 
In fact, we love ourselves so much that most of our anger, if not all of our anger and depression is not because we don't love ourselves, but just the opposite. Our anger and depression often rises out of the fact that others don't love us as much or as intensely as we love ourselves. When we say things like, how could you treat me this way? Who am I thinking about, you or me? <laughs> how dare they do that? Or what right do they think that? Who am I thinking about? I'm not thinking about anybody else. You know. We resent people's unwillingness to make my pleasure and my happiness the central object of their lives. Do you realize how many marriages would be revolutionized overnight, revitalized overnight, if simply husbands stopped complaining about their wives not respecting them and wives stopped complaining about their husbands not loving them and made it their mission in life to love and respect one another without really keeping score and counting how well they treat you or how poorly they treat you. But the fact of the matter is we marry based upon how that other person is going to fulfill what we feel is empty or lacking in us. And when they can't live up to the impossible challenge, I mean, it's impossible to make me feel good about myself. Now, I'm not, I'm not, don't get confused. I love myself and I love myself so much that I was really angry because I didn't feel good about myself. And I was really angry that I married this beautiful young lady and that wasn't the solution to that feeling. You see, there's a desire to consume, as Lewis put it, rather than to be consumed. To see each other as the object that we're supposed to acquire, to pray, to, as prey to be captured, as property to be coveted, trophies to be displayed for the admiration of others. I think that even, and here I know I'm going to walk right into the minefield with big boots, but even our pride in our children sometimes is toxic because it's really about how we want them to make us look and feel about ourselves. Make me proud, son. <laughs> it's like, why do we put that kind of stuff on our kids? <laughs> Their job is to make us proud. You know, I think the one thing I got right as a parent is I told my kids, don't worry about me, worry about Jesus. <laughs> Live for Jesus, serve him, be, honor him, and whatever he does in your life, I'll support and I'll respect. But make Jesus the one that you're trying to follow. Don't look to me. You see, in all of Peter and Paul's evangelistic sermons, we find one often overlooked and frequently repeated term. It's the word repent. At Pentecost, remember in chapter 2, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You receive that empowering of the Holy Spirit, the ability to love one another, to serve God and to bring glory to his life. But you have to first repent. That's not going to happen until you have repented. In chapter 3, where we just read here, he says, repent and turn to God, which means I have to turn away from myself. My oldest son put it really well one time. He says, what we really need to repent of is ourselves. I need to repent of everything that's about me and my goals and my desires and my ambitions and begin to say, Lord, I'm turning to you. Your will be done. Your kingdom come in my life as it is in heaven. Repent and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. They will not be wiped out if you don't do that. And that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Even Paul, speaking to the, the Gentile Athenians, ended his sermon in chapter 17 by saying to him, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, you know, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I think it's pretty clear when he says all people 
everywhere. That kind of involves all of us. God's command, not God's wish or desire or, or suggestion, his command is that we repent. Now, the reason we avoid repentance as a starting point in our evangelism is because the response is often, but what do I need to repent for? And here again, we find that they help us. This is where Dr. Bright begins to get it right. I wish this had been law one instead of law two. He said, man is sinful and separated from God. A couple of weeks ago, I ended up in a conversation with a young man, uh, a young 20-year-old man who was working the plan for his life to be rich and famous and fabulous. And, and uh, he made the mistake of, uh, of saying to my wife that he was a Muslim. And uh, judging by the glass of wine in his hand, I said, you know, you're actually a very bad Muslim then <laughs> because you're not supposed to be drinking. But as we sat down and began to have this conversation, it was interesting because what he wanted to share with me was how good he was, how righteous he was, how all these good things about his life. And I kept on coming back to the same point, but I said, basically, your problem is that you are a sinner. And God says sinners will go to hell if they don't repent. And after about saying this in various ways for about 30 minutes, he just sat there silently and began to listen to what I had to say. But you see, if I had said to him, God loves you, bro, he would have said, amen. Of course he does. How could he not? I hated him because he was born with everything I didn't get. But anyway. But this is Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, where it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. This is the reality. Paul begins his letter to the Romans not talking about how great people are. He says they are depraved. They are depraved. He said that God has given them over to all sorts of immoral, immoral acts, many which we are now told we can't call immoral. But God seems to have no trouble saying these are shameful behaviors that come as a consequence of turning one's back on God, a consequence of being in love with yourself so much that you don't care what God has to say. And that's where I think the church is really beginning to slip into a very unhealthy place. Increasingly, I see Christians who profess to be Bible-believing Christians, but they really, when it's all said and done, not only are ignorant of what the Bible says, they just don't care what the Bible says because they're listening to the popular media to shape and form their theology. And when they hear over and over again, you have to love yourself first. If you're not good for you, you're not good for anybody else. You just need more me time. Believe me, if you were inside my head, you'd realize I get me time 16 hours a day. I see the world through my me lens. It's something that I have to practically repent of on an ongoing basis. Uh, I was going to give you an example, but it's too transparent. Uh, but note how Peter begins by emphasizing in chapter 2 and again in chapter 4, he says to them, you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now there's a way to make yourself popular. Or again, he says, you handed him over to be killed. You disowned him before Pilate the holy and the righteous one you disowned and asked that a murderer be released to you, you killed the author of life. In other words, what he's saying is you need to own your sin. One writer put it really well once. He said, sin which bears the heaviest of weights in heaven is the most lightly thought of thing in the world of men. 
we always kind of, we live in a sinful world full of sinful people and we just kind of diminish the meaning of that and the significance of that to our own life. But if you step back and look at your own life and realize that everything that is broken and wrong and painful in your life is because you have sinned and not just once, but really repetitively. <clears throat> my prayer, my wife and I, as we pray each day, my, one of my prayers I repeatedly say is, Lord, help me to see the sins that I don't even see. Help me to see those secret things in my life that I don't even realize. Because as I age, I find myself suddenly having a new perspective on my years in Christ, years in ministry. Even before I was a Christian, I begin to reevaluate all these different things that I've said and done over the years and realize, God, so much of that was nothing more than selfish ambition and pride and striving and grasping, even as a Christian. I can't tell you the temptation that pastors suffer from the need to be successful and to stand up here in front of a room full of people and after you've pontificated, as I do for maybe 20 or 30 minutes at most, <laughs> to walk away and go, still got it. And my wife says, you never had it. <laughs> Salvation does not begin with realizing how much I'm loved, but as Tim Keller put it rather succinctly, it's when you realize you are more sinful than you ever thought. You're more sinful than you ever imagined. Let that sink in for a moment. I know it's not a fun thing to contemplate, but it's where real repentance begins in our life when we realize God. I'm so much worse than I ever was. I ever thought I was. To live selflessly is a grace of God, not a character quality to develop. And this is where the Christian legalism begins to creep into our lives, where we think that the, the virtues of God that he calls us to follow somehow can be disciplined and trained and captured so that we become these people who live out these admirable character qualities. When Kevin, uh, Stephen Covey wrote his book, The Seven Habits of Highly uh, Effective People, I, I grabbed on it and began to read it. And by the time I got to the fourth character quality, I realized that I am toast. <laughs> I will never be the guy he's describing here. When the promise keepers came out with the seven promises of the promise keepers, and people said, what do you think of that? And I said, I can't keep the 10 commandments. How am I going to add seven more to it? It's almost, it's, that's kind of like congressional thinking. Add a law to something else to make it more effective. It doesn't work. It just means more ways in which I can violate the transgressions. I love what Oswald Chambers once said. I am never more than who I am when I'm on my face before the foot of the cross. I never rise higher than that. And the problem is that we've developed a kind of Christianity in our culture that says it's all about lifting yourself up and becoming all that you can be. When at the end of the day, all that I can be is a sinner saved by grace. And I don't mean to, to, to diminish the significance of being saved by grace and being led by grace and being filled by grace. I'm telling you, friends, that is what makes you love grace. That's what makes grace beautiful. That's what makes grace amazing because I was lost. He found me. I was blind and he gave me sight. I was dead. He made me alive. What part of that equation involves you? None of it. It's what he has done for you. And he did it for one simple reason, because he loves you. Why, I have no idea. But he does. He loves you. And he was willing to do all of that to save you. And the danger is that we create a Christianity that says, somehow I got saved and now I am lovable. Now I am attractive. And in fact, now we are saved. 
and God is at work in our life. But I know that if I follow the Lord, if I am led by the Spirit of God, I will do good. But if I go back to my own self, I will do bad. It's just that simple. Or someone once put it so astutely, they said, if it's good, it's Jesus. If it's bad, it's me. And in fact, the person who said that seemed to have forgotten that he has the capacity to do bad things because he's done a bunch of bad stuff. I'm sorry. feel bad about that. I'm glad that I've never done any bad things. There are a few of us who are simply perfect in this world, let me tell you. But you see, all of this is really essentially the bad news. So we ask the question, what is the good news? Well, that's where the third law comes in, where he said Jesus Christ is God's only provision for man's sin. If you think that he is one of many ways, then you're not a follower of Christ. You have not repented of your sin. You have never come to realize how depraved you are outside of Jesus. People sometimes say, well, you make such a big deal about it. It's a big deal because it is the whole deal. It's like buying something and say, don't bother yourself with that fine print stuff. It's not really important until you sign it. And then it becomes everything. The whole point is that this is the issue. If I think that I can save myself by something I do or some other thing, it is no longer the gospel of grace. It's the gospel of Ken being as good as he can be, which isn't very good. I got a feeling after this sermon, you guys are going to give me wide berth. <laughs> He's crazy. <laughs> and that's where the fourth law comes in. We must receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We must. There's no option. We must receive him as our Lord and Savior. But notice, Lord, which means he's master of my life, not just the Savior of my life. Am I really living to be mastered by Christ? You see, the... The heart of this process is this idea of repentance. In fact, one lexicon kind of tried to explain the words that are used here in the original as to their meaning. It says, though in English the focus is on sorrow or contrition. In other words, we know somebody's repented by how many tears they've shed. Uh, unless, of course, they're a professional crier, then, you have, then all bets are off, right? Well, it never mentions anything about crying or sorrow or flagellation or doing penance or any of those kind of things. Those aren't biblical concepts in terms of salvation. But it says, he goes on to say, but in the Greek, the emphasis is total change. A change of one's way of life. That suddenly my lifestyle becomes part of what it means to be a Christian. As a result of that change of thought, attitude, and behavior, and then he adds, with regard to sin and righteousness. I change my thoughts, I change my attitude, and I change my behavior regarding what? Regarding sin and what I understand to be sin, and secondly, what I understand to be righteousness. Those are the two poles, sin and righteousness. Those are the two paths that I can go down. Which one am I pursuing? Am I pursuing the life of sin or am I pursuing the life of righteousness? And when I have repented, I have completely changed my mind and my attitude and my behavior regarding the life of sin that I once lived that was totally based upon living for my own self and acquiring as much admiration, devotion, and love from other people as we can get. That's why I always thought naming a TV show American Idol was so ironic. It's when the prophet says they glory in their shame. And we watch those shows and we see people glorying and trying to be the best that they can be. And I hear these young people saying, this is my dream. This is what I've always wanted to do. And then we never hear from them again. I often wonder what happened to that dream. And why is it so many of those who reach the dream end up becoming addicted to drugs, alcohol, and all sorts of other self-destructive lifestyles. Because some dreams can easily pervert into a nightmare. But then finally, the commenter adds, he says, to see the full light of the revelation of God. In other words, to have your eyes completely opened is the greatest of privileges. 
but it is also the most terrible of responsibilities. That's why when Paul is standing before the Roman governor and, and King Agrippa, he explains, he says, from Damascus to Jerusalem and all Judea and to the Gentiles everywhere, I preached, I preached, this was my message, I preached that they should repent and turn to God. And here's the tough part. And prove their repentance by their deeds. We don't repent by our deeds. We give evidence that we have repented. My fear, quite honestly, is that there are many people in our, our world today, especially in our country with its um, love-at-all-cost gospel, who may be claiming to be born again, but they are not. They may be convinced of the truth of the gospel, but they've never been converted by it. They have been, may have been Christianized in their lifestyle, but it's, they've never changed. And hence, as Paul said to the Ephesians, he said they're still dead in their trespasses and sins. I understand why many of my peers don't want to preach a message like this. It's not the way to make yourself popular and win friends. It's not the message that people want to be here, here today in our world. They do want to hear that God loves you so much that he, there's nothing he would ever do to harm you. And then we get confused because harm does come into our lives, doesn't it? Evil does come into our lives. <laughs> Things go terribly wrong around us and and despite our best efforts, sometimes they go really, really badly wrong. And even though we fight the good fight of faith, sometimes it feels like we're losing the battle. But has it ever occurred to us, I ask myself this, that really the problem is because we haven't really been preaching the full gospel. We think by telling people or convincing them that we're the most loving people on the planet, that somehow they're going to want to become part of us. Well, they may want a part of you, but they're not going to really want to become part of us. <laughs> and oftentimes, people walk into a place like this and say, I, I came here because I just felt the love that was here, and there was so much, I just felt that energy, and there was so much wonderful love and good vibes and all those sort of things, until they get to meet some of you. <laughs> and they find that, You got baggage. <laughs> You're not perfect. My prayer for this church I think my wife can verify this. My staff will verify it. My prayer for this church is that we would be a safe place for sinners, but not a safe place to sin. Those are big polar differences here. Yeah? I want to be a safe place for sinners. I, I don't want us to be in here pretending like our stuff doesn't stink. God just allowed one of the greatest creations in the history of mankind, poopery. <laughs> you familiar with this? They got it at Costco. I mean, it's, it's really magic stuff. They have it at Ace Hardware, too. I saw it there. I'm buying it up everywhere I can, you know. <laughs> but you just, you know, a few sprays in the toilet before you do your business, and man, it's like... Your stuff doesn't stink. <laughs> what a concept. <laughs> no more courtesy flushes. Oh, you guys are so classy. <laughs> there he goes with his bathroom humor again. <laughs> I mean, one of the funniest things I think about, about people is bathrooms. That's, that's hilarious. My dog never had a concern about that. <laughs> he always wanted to share that gift all over the yard. <laughs> he was proud of it. Went back and smelled it. Oh, he's crazy. I don't... But back to the point, whatever that was. <laughs> Seriously, friends. 
You and I are sinners saved by grace. And when we're on our face before the Lord and we're just honest about it, God, I, I'm a flawed man with sins that I don't even see in myself that kind of just come out of me like body odor. I don't even have to work at producing it. They're just there. That's why Paul said, oh, wretched man that I am, deliver me from this body of death. This is why heaven is so attractive to the repentant man and woman because we recognize that we have this sin nature that always produces hurtful things in our life. That we even do things we don't even intend to hurt people, we do. And it would be unbearable that you, to the point where you'd either have to pretend like bad things were never done by you or else on the other extreme live in such shame and guilt perpetually that you can't stand yourself. But there's this middle road, this, this path of grace where God says, I know all that about you. I know all of your junk. There's no mystery here. Nothing's hidden from my eyes. But if you ask me, I will forgive you. And that forgiveness is the basis upon which your life is to be built. Take away forgiveness, there's no gospel. Take away forgiveness, there's no gospel. I am forgiven. And the reason I can forgive other people for things they do is because I realize how much greater things I have been forgiven for. Father, I pray that you would enable these things to sink into our minds, mine included, Lord. Even as I preach these things, Lord, I, I realize that I need to hear them, maybe in many ways more than anybody else in the room. Your grace is amazing, Lord. It's, it, we marvel at it because when we realize how we deserve just the opposite, It's, it's staggering, it's confounding to know that you actually love us and forgive us. But help us also to realize, Lord, that this is only a safe place when it's a place where sinners are safe. And it's a safe place when sin isn't safe here. But we allow the Holy Spirit to call us out on our sinning whenever it rises. Help us, Lord. Give us that grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.